With your kind attention a song I will thrill. All ye who must toil with the pick and the drill, and sweat for your bread in that hole in Oak Hill that goes down, down, down. Philip Mosley tells us that when northeastern Pennsylvania was first settled and immigrants from many countries came in successive waves to work in coal mining, they brought their traditional folk music. In its original forms and its American adaptations and developments, music was at the heart of regional life. Often accompanied by dance, music was performed and heard daily in every part of the mining community in homes, churches, bar rooms, at picnics and festivals, on marches and at rallies. It stirred people to action, accompanied their labors, lifted their sagging spirits, soothed their everyday pains, shared their common experiences, and celebrated their pride and togetherness. get a lamp to go down, down, down. The lamp man, he squints through the window at me. What's your name and your age and your number, said he. Bill Caton, I'm 30, number 23, mark that down, down, down. By the early 20th century, changing social patterns and growing mobility had weakened and ingrown traditional music, while emerging modern technologies of mass communication, such as radio and phonograph records, took over the function of providing popular music for the masses, the old songs and their system of oral transmission were now in danger of disappearing or, at best, being drowned out by the new reproducible sounds of Tin Pan Alley, Hillbilly, Ragtime Blues, and Jazz. It was then that folklorist George Corson decided to intervene at the 11th hour, as he put it, seeing that members of the mining communities now preferred more easily disseminated and mass-distributed popular songs to live performance from the regional canon of folkloric material. Hostile to commercial recordings and fearing the loss of a tradition, Corson began a mission to save it from slipping into oblivion. He published Songs and Ballads of the Anthracite Minor in 1927, and an expanded version became Minstrels of the Mine Patch, Songs and Stories of the Anthracite Industry, 1938, his definitive work. In 1946, Corson embarked on the second and crucial part of his mission by going down to the mines to record songs in Pottsville, Wilkes-Barre, Buckrun, Tamaqua, Shenandoah, and Centralia. These recordings were first released by the Archive of American Folk Song of the Library of Congress in a set of five 78 RPM records in 1947, on a vinyl LP album in 1958, and on a CD in 1997. They remain the mother load of anthracite mining songs, formerly held by the D. Leonard Corgan Library at King's College in Wilkes-Barre. The Corson Collection, donated to the library by Corson in 1965, is now housed in the Archive of Folk Culture at the Library of Congress, though the Corgan Library holds copies of much of the original material. Words of Philip Mosley from his new study titled Telling of the Anthracite, a Pennsylvania Post-History. Dr. Mosley is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at Penn State University. He is the author of Anthracite! Exclamation Point, an anthology of Pennsylvania coal region plays and a number of studies on literature and cinema.
and a number of translations. He explains his aims in the preface to telling of the anthracite. This book is not a conventional academic work, for I am not a professional historian. My fields are the study of literature and cinema, as well as the practice of literary translation. I am purely an amateur local history enthusiast who came to this project in retirement following a 40-year career in another sector of the humanities. My book represents a tribute to the region where I have made my home for over 30 years and to its people whose lives were long dominated by a single industry, one that brought great prosperity to a few, but greater poverty and hardship to many others. I hope this book may also serve as an introduction to the study of anthracite historiography and as a source of information for those curious to learn about how anthracite history has been told over the last six decades. Their hearts were filled with joy to see their men go to their work. Dr. Mosley is a wonderful friend of WVIA Radio, and he paid a return visit to the WVIA studios this time to talk about his new book and how he came to write it. In my last year in high school, um, it was a toss-up, really, whether I would major in English or history at university. And... I was pretty good at both, and I knew at the top of my class. And so I thought about it for a while, and I thought, now, you know, what do I want to do? You know, the British BA is a three-year thing. Uh, do I want to spend three years reading historical textbooks and poring over archaic documents? Or, do I, or would I rather spend those three years reading short stories, novels, poems, and plays? No-brainer. And so I read English at university, but I've always had a love of history. And I carried that love of history with me. And now, as you mentioned, I, I've retired, and that uh, love of history has come to the fore again. Uh, it doesn't mean that I turned my back on my first love, which is literature, but I, I thought this was an opportunity for me to try to write something that would open up a piece of local history in a slightly different way, because I would bring my professional experience and my background in the humanities, literature particularly, and the arts, to bear on the story of Pennsylvania anthracite coal. And you tell us that you, in fact, grew up in places where industrial history was front and center or the industrial experience in the aisles. Yes, I almost feel that sort of runs in my blood, really, runs in my veins, because although my parents were not involved in anything industrial and did not come from an industrial background, well, my father did. He was from Sheffield, which was the Pittsburgh of England, the great steel city of England. And so when I went to stay with my grandparents as a child, I was surrounded by heavy industry there. It was Sheffield Steel was the big thing. And then I, when I went to Leeds University to study English, uh, that's just up the road from Sheffield, I became more familiar with the Yorkshire coal fields, which lay between Sheffield and Leeds, basically. So I was exposed to that landscape and that environment, and it always struck a chord with me. And then when I was in Scotland, in Glasgow, uh, I was again surrounded by the old West Scotland coalfield as well. And so almost in, in many places I'd either experienced as a young person or where I had gone to live and work, uh, there was this heavy industry. And, the, you know, the landscape, the, the buildings, the, the culture that goes with that always left a mark on me. 
and um, I came to northeastern Pennsylvania in 1988 to take up a position at Penn State. And no sooner had I landed around here than I realized I was in yet another environment where heavy industry had told a very deep and long story. And I became fascinated by it. In fact, you know, you might say I started taking notes the day after I arrived. And over a great number of years, I've amassed quite a lot of information and knowledge about the region that I have made my own and uh, lived here for 35 years now. So I feel as if I'm part of the furniture now. And bit by bit, I began to think, wouldn't it be nice to pay some kind of a tribute to this area where, I, where I've made my home, to its people and to the places, uh, and try to write something about the history of anthracite coal mining in northeastern Pennsylvania, but one that comes at it from my own particular vantage point, which is coming out of literature and the arts, basically. I taught film for many years and have written on cinema, as, as you know, and so there was also that great interest in cinema feeding into it. And I spent quite a lot of time at different moments just going around the area, exploring, just to get the feel because, you know, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, I've arrived here now and I've looked around and I know where I am. It, the, the area takes a long time to get to know properly. So I did a lot of that and continued my note-taking. And ultimately, uh, I had enough uh, material for me to think about putting it together in the form of a book. Hence, this book that's finally come to pass, uh, Telling of the Anthracite, uh, a Pennsylvania post-history. And the title tells us the telling of anthracite, it gives us a sense of that's what you're about. You're telling us or you're pointing us in the direction of how we have told the story, how we might tell the story in the future, and the importance of the telling. That is the nub of the book, really. You know, there's been much written on anthracite history, and I would not presume to know anywhere near as much as many people who specialized in that. My interest, as you rightly say, is in looking at how that history, how that story of anthracite has been told in the period since the industry began to collapse definitively. And so I set myself uh, a date, which was arbitrary in some senses, but I think it's also a good starting point of 1960. So basically, my book deals with the way in which the anthracite story has been told over the last six decades. And the reason I chose that date was because symbolically it seemed quite a, a powerful moment, uh, a tragic moment too, but a powerful moment because in 1959 you had the Knox mine disaster in Port Griffith, uh, not far from these studios down the river. And that, as many of your listeners will know, was the disaster that more or less put paid to deep coal mining in the northern field and by extension put paid to deep anthracite mining throughout northeastern Pennsylvania. So there was that moment which brought it very close to 1960, just a year before that date. And then of course there's uh, another disaster which isn't over and that's the Centralia mine fire which began in 1962 and the fire still burns today although there's virtually nothing left of the town of Centralia. And so those two cataclysmic events seem to be the right symbolic moments for the beginning of my particular approach to this subject. And my subtitle is a Pennsylvania post-history. One or two people have already asked me now, just what do you mean by post-history? What's all that about? For one thing, uh, a lot of readers now will be familiar with 
terms such as postmodernism and post-structuralism. I mean, post this, post that has become something that's been taken on board in quite a, a number of different fields. The reason I called it a post-history was because I wanted to stress that this is the period after the history of anthracite, basically. That the history of anthracite is from when the industry began right through until it began its definitive decline, and hence it brought us up to that period around 1960. So it's a post-history in that what I deal with in this book, apart from one or two exceptions for, for various reasons, uh, does not go back to the period before then. It's really, what have we done with this history in the time since the industry collapsed? We know the region's leaders were faced with an area in sharp decline in the period you're describing from 1960 on, and sometimes they thought it best to forget the gritty coal history and make an effort to rebrand northeastern Pennsylvania using a term we might use today. Yes, indeed. And I mean, although in many senses the post-history is a sad story of uh, economic and social decline and great difficulty, one also has to remember that the post-historical period in the anthracite region of northeastern Pennsylvania has also been a period in which there have been many initiatives, as you just hinted, many initiatives launched to try to revive the region, to give it a fresh identity, to give it a fresh uh, economic boost. Some of these uh, initiatives, of course, have fallen on stony ground, but others have picked up and developed. And I would say one of the most important ones, and one which is central to my book, is the idea that uh, the history of the anthracite region becomes something of cultural worth, and that the telling of that story is to be found uh, not only in the development of museums, and uh, old mining sites that have been repurposed for tourism and historical uh, value and so on, but also uh, that the story has appealed to many, many creative people in literature and the arts, writers of different kinds, visual artists, sculptors, mixed-media people, photographers particularly, and the performing arts too, music, theatre, it's uh, the, whole, the whole range, the whole panoply, if you like, of, of literature and the arts has engaged itself in different ways with this telling of the anthracite. What's so valuable is that your study examines such a range of that cultural coming to terms with the history of the region. We might see an article here about a photographer or a theater piece or someone from anthracite. But this is such an important study because of the fact that you give us that range of arts and artists looking at the history of the area. Yes, and as, as I was uh, putting it together, uh, I thought to myself that, you know, this, this book could serve as, uh, in one way, as a sort of guide and a compendium almost. So that instead of, as you say, people being aware of the story being told here and there, in bits and pieces, the odd article here, the program there, or stumbling upon an exhibition here, or reading an article there, or what have you. My book would serve to sort of bring all these various strands together and try and put them in some kind of perspective. While we're talking about the telling of anthracite, you and I have discussed the cover photo, and it is metaphorical. It's a, a striking photo just on its own, but it does do something that's very much representative of what you're about in the book. 
The photograph is by Joseph Elliott, who was a professor at Muhlenberg College, and it's called St. Nicholas, referring to the old St. Nick Breaker in Schuylkill County. St. Nicholas from the Yard Office. And the picture is is a sort of mise en abeam, really, because it's taken from inside the old yard office, and you see through the window and see the St. Nick Breaker sitting behind it in snow. And the moment I saw this image, when Joe Elliott was kind enough to share some of his work with me and let me go through it and see if there was anything I might want to use for the book, the moment I saw it, I thought, this is one of the most magnificent photographs I have ever seen of the anthracite region and I want it for the cover of the book. And I slightly sheepishly said to Joe Elliott, Joe, would you mind if I propose this as the cover of the book? And he was all for it. He said, no, I'd be honoured to have it on the cover. If you can get it to be reproduced as faithfully as possible, I'd be doubly pleased. And I just got an email from him. He's got the book now. I just got an email from him the other day saying, uh, love the cover, the quality is excellent. So he's obviously very, very pleased with the way his picture came out. We're talking in Anthracite Mining Heritage Month, and one of the things I thought we might do since the impetus for the month's commemoration has been remembering the Knox disaster. Maybe that's a good place to talk about how the Knox disaster in 1959, what kinds of ways have we been remembering it? Yes, it's it's quite interesting, really, because in one of my chapters, which is called Representing Disaster, I focus on Knox and Centralia, since they were my twin starting points for the post-history. And what became fairly clear to me was that there has been a fair amount of commemoration on a on an informal and slightly more formal level of the Knox disaster over the years, particularly such things as the annual gathering, the walk to the mine site, and so on. And that uh, is a very, very important part of that commemoration. But if you look at literature and the arts, apart from film, documentary film, there's really not very much on Knox. Uh, It hasn't really been written about in creative writing. And I think one of the reasons for that is that if if you go to the site, there isn't all that much to see. And so there isn't really very much material for writers to to work with. If you contrast that with Centralia, for example, there, although the town is decimated, there's virtually nothing left, it's been a focal point for what what we call dark tourism, uh, people who, you know, get a kind of nefarious thrill out of going to strange and abandoned places. And so Centralia, because of its rather weird and eerie history, has spawned a huge amount of writing novels, uh, mainly novels, but uh, other types of writing too. But uh, going back to Knox, it has been a good subject for documentary film. And you you were involved in one example of that in the 1980s. And it was around that time when uh, interest in doing documentary film about the Knox began. And there was more than one documentary, including the one that you were involved in for this station. And More recently, of course, a documentary film on the Knox has come back into focus with the film by David Brocker called Knox, uh, Mine Disaster, which uh, has been shown quite extensively in the area in the last couple of years and has renewed interest in that particular history and has been, you know, yet another example of how the Knox disaster has been commemorated. 
And while we're talking about films and because it's a specialty of yours, Philip, what about popular films like the Molly Maguire's, the way Hollywood has viewed our area? Very interesting, that, because there really isn't very much. And part of the problem I've always felt, I felt this uh, for a long time in in doing work on different types of films and filmmakers, is that um, Hollywood has never really been very comfortable dramatizing the lives of the American working class. Uh, It's something to do perhaps with the desire for, you know, happy endings and the romanticism and the glamour associated with Hollywood. And so if you look at films to do with the anthracite region, there is a really very extensive and rich history of documentary film. And that's why I devote one complete chapter, not only to the post-historical film, but also going way, way back. And that's the one chapter where I step outside of my post-historical parameter and look at the whole history of cinema in relation to the anthracite region. And when you add it all up, there really aren't more than three films that immediately spring to mind. There was The Miracle of the Bells, which was uh, a Hollywood film from the late 40s, which had as its theme uh, life in the anthracite region. But in the post-historical period, there have really only been two, and they came out roughly at the same time. One, of course, just about everyone knows about, and that's The Molly Maguires, 1969. And the other one is a film that very few people knew about at the time, and many perhaps still don't know about, but which has become a so-called cult movie. And that is Wanda, which was uh, made in 1970 by Barbara Loden, who was uh, Elia Kazan's wife. And she was a woman of considerable skills, not only uh, behind the camera, but also as an actor. And she plays the title role of Wanda. And that is a film very much about alienation in the post-industrial period. And being made in 1970, the film is very much also about how bleak it was back then. I mean, now we're in a much better place around here than we were. I wasn't in northeastern Pennsylvania at the time, but from everything I've read and talked to people about, you know, the period, the 60s and the 70s, there was a lot of very despondent, there was a despondent mood that hung over much of the region at that time. And Wanda captures, I think, that sense of alienation, that sense of almost despair that afflicted a lot of people who had grown up around here and suddenly found that King Cole had disappeared and there really wasn't anything to replace it. The only thing that was left to show King Cole had been there was just environmental destruction everywhere and uh, ruination everywhere. And those are about the only two films, uh, feature films. You've just talked with us about the moving image What about still photography? Quite a few outside photographers have come to the region and found it fascinating as a subject. Uh, But I think probably the most important one of all is George Harvin, mainly because his work spans both the quote-unquote historical period of anthracite and the post-historical period. And the other thing that distinguishes Harvin's work, of course, is that he was a local man and he was very much... uh, close companion of many of the miners in the area he he grew up in. He grew up in the Panther Valley, and he really spent most of his life photographing mines and miners in that area. And his his work is remarkably good. I think if he had decided to leave northeastern Pennsylvania, 
he might have ended up almost in the pantheon of you know Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang and all those guys. He was that good. Um, but his work is, is, is very interesting because he does record decline and he does record the loss of the industry. But because of his relationship to the mining community and its culture and because of his close friendship with many miners, he always emphasized the good things, the positive things, and his pictures show that. You know, the industriousness, the honesty, the pride of those miners. And in my book, I have one of his, uh, I think, one of his best pictures called Last Car of Coal, which shows Mike Sabron, who was one of the last of the uh, miners who tried to revive the old number nine mine in Lansford uh, and did so for a period of years. But finally, their uh, enterprise folded in 1972. And George Harvin was right on hand there with his camera and captured Sabron coming out of the mine with, literally, the last car of coal. And so, although it's a terribly sad image, it's also an extraordinarily proud and almost defiant image at the same time. And, you know, speaking of Harvin, people have often noticed that many of his pictures, beautifully composed as they are, are very, very dark. And he was asked about that once, and he said, well, I'm photographing mines and miners. Coal, it's dark stuff. You know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't superlight these, uh, these kinds of images. He said, I deliberately went for a darker palette with my shots because he felt that that was the only way in which he could honestly, through his photography, capture the feel of the coal region. And, you know, and it's a similar thing you'll find in the work of painters who've come out of the region. You know, Franz Klein is probably the best example of that, where even though, you know, he was best known for abstraction, the the grain of his imagery in his paintings reflects so much the grime and the dirt and the dullness of the anthracite region when the industry was at its height and going full pelt. You used an interesting phrase, Philip, when you were talking about the film Wanda, and you said there was a despondent mood that hung over the region in the 60s and 70s, and I've sometimes felt that the region as a whole never really had a way to grieve the tremendous losses from the trials and tragedies of the anthracite era, and that there was a kind of pall hanging over the area. Actually, you touch on a very interesting point there, Erica. One of the things I discovered in researching the book was that most of the work, creative and historiographic, on anthracite began to pick up from the beginning of the 1980s onwards. And that for the first 20 years of my post-history, basically the 60s and the 70s, there existed in the region a kind of collective amnesia. And I thought long and hard about this. And I thought to myself, in, in well, the conclusion I reached was that the hurt was so great, the tragedy of the disappearance of the industry was so traumatic for so many people in the region, that there was a period of 20 or so years in which people were literally unable to speak about it or write about it or do anything with it because a fair historical perspective on it and an understanding of what really had happened had not formed yet. And so, you know, although there are some interesting things from the 1960s and 1970s that I mention in my, in my book, in other words, in the early part of the post-historical period, it really begins to gather pace 
from the 1980s onwards. And the 80s and the 90s, and even the first years of this century, saw a huge outpouring of material of one sort or another that tells the story of anthracite. And it's still going on, although it's perhaps the pace has slackened a little bit. And I thought to myself, yes, you know, this is probably, and I explore in my book quite a lot to do with how collective memory works and why it is that people might not be able to, to articulate their grief or articulate their sense of loss. And I think it is largely that, that in the, in the wake of trauma, and that's not too strong a word to use here because not only was the decline and collapse of the industry traumatic in itself, but then you had Knox and then you had Centralia and various other disasters associated with it, such as Shepton, which was also a, a mine, uh, miners trapped below ground, as with Knox, and also uh, a number of disasters that are still with us, not merely Centralia, but for example, the, the, the disasters of iron oxide pollution of the waterways and so on, which continue to this day. People simply could not, the, the degree to which this tragedy had taken place in their midst was so great, surrounding them or with daily, daily reminders of it, that people didn't really know how to deal with it, how to, how to put it into perspective, how to filter it against their own experiences. And, I mean, they say time heals everything. Well, there's still a lot of healing to be done. But that perhaps is right, that after a while, there was enough distance from the, the dreadful moment, if you like, of the realization that that was it. Coal was, coal, coal was gone and would not come back. I mean, it still exists, of course, but only in, as a minor industry now in the, in the region. I think it was only at that moment that people began to feel as if they could speak out about it, they could express themselves through written language as well, and painters and photographers and musicians began to, you know, take it upon themselves to also represent this history in many, many different styles and, and, and ways, ways that they saw fit. Dr. Philip Mosley, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at Penn State University. He is the author of Anthracite, an anthology of Pennsylvania coal region plays, and a number of studies on literature and cinema, and also a number of translations. He spent time with us today on Art Scene talking about his new book, Telling of the Anthracite, a Pennsylvania post-history that has been released by Oxford Southern, an imprint of Sunbury Press. And we have a chance to meet Dr. Mosley this Thursday evening at King's College. King's College will host the Anthracite Heritage Foundation public program, the annual Monsignor John J. Curran Lecture. And we spoke with Dr. Mosley last year at this time when he was set to deliver the John J. Curran lecture. We have a chance to meet him this Thursday, though, as part of the annual Monsignor John J. Curran lecture program on January 25th, this Thursday. The deliverer of the lecture is Professor Brendan McSwain from the University of Galway in Ireland, speaking about the Irish of northeastern Pennsylvania from 1820 to 1920. And to begin the program, the first 
Anthracite Heritage Book Award will be presented to Dr. Philip Mosley for telling of the anthracite. That's the annual Monsignor John J. Curran Lecture with the speaker, Brendan McSwain, from the University of Galway. He will come to the States to deliver this lecture. From the potato patch to the mine patch, the Irish of northeastern Pennsylvania, 1820 to 1920. There will be a welcome from Father Thomas Looney, who is president of King's College, and the presentation to Dr. Philip Mosley of the first Anthracite Heritage Foundation Book Award, and it will be presented by Dr. Robert Walensky of King's College, and who is an esteemed Anthracite historian. You can attend the event at King's College in the Burke Auditorium, and that's at 133 North River Street in Wilkesbury. At 7 o'clock, refreshments will be provided and for more information on the web, ahfdn.org, ahfdn.org. And that's this Thursday evening at 7 at King's College in Burke Auditorium of the McGowan Business School, 133 North River Street, getting underway at 7 o'clock. Admission is free. <laughs> 